Good morning again. I feel better now. I got that out of my system. Okay. Uh, hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. We are beginning a series this morning uh, during Advent looking at the incarnation. Uh, so if you would grab your Bibles uh, and turn to the book of John. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 3, probably a very familiar passage to many of you. Uh, the book of John is the book of Jesus' uh, encounters. He has these individual encounters that he has with people throughout the book of John. You think of uh, John and Nicodemus, who we're going to look at today, the woman from Samaria that comes and talks to Jesus. You think about Jesus and Mary and Martha and the raising of Lazarus, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, uh, Jesus and the man with the withered hand, Jesus and the man uh, who was born blind. There are all of these uh, singular encounters where individuals come face to face with Jesus. And after Jesus chooses the disciples and he clears the temple in John chapter 2, we have the first of these in the book of John with a man named Nicodemus. So we're going to look today at Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, as I was preparing for this series, uh, you know, the Christmas story is full of a variety of characters, isn't it? That you have uh, widows, you have priests, you have kings, you have old men, you have barren women, you have shepherds and angels, and uh, all of these uh, individuals paint this tapestry and this portrait of what happens when God becomes man. But what I want to do for these next three weeks or so is take a look at the incarnation through God's eyes, to take somewhat of all of these individual experiences and get above them for a minute and look at if you were going to look at the incarnation from God's perspective of what he was trying to communicate through sending Jesus Christ, what would you learn about God? So it seems odd to do that during the Christmas season to go, well, of course we're going to talk about God, but uh, I want to move all of these human characters and even created angelic characters out of the way just for a minute and look at God himself. What do we learn about God himself from the incarnation? Uh, our staff team is reading a book by Tim Keller called this right here, Hidden Christmas, uh, The Surprising Truth Behind the birth of Christ. And as we were reading it, I came across this quote that I, I wanted to read to you that sort of sets the framework for our hearts and mind at Christmas, that Christians aren't fundamentally just nostalgic people. We don't just love pine trees, right? That's not that we don't get to Christmas and go, oh, finally, we can put up lights and pine trees. That's the thing for us that really just makes our heart beat. There's something else happening behind all the decorations and the nostalgia and the lights and the carols and the meals and all of that, right? There's, there's some abiding truth behind and underneath all of that that causes Christians, causes their hearts to sing, right? For us to, to be reminded of joy to the world. So here's what Tim Keller says in, in the prologue of this book here. He says, every year... Our increasingly secular Western society becomes more unaware of its own historical roots, many of which are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Yet once a year at Christmas, these basic truths become a bit more accessible to an enormous audience. At countless gatherings, concerts, parties, 
and other events, even when most participants are non-religious, the essentials of the faith can sometimes become visible. As an example, let's ask some questions of the famous Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Heard in malls and grocery stores and even on street corners. Who is Jesus? He is, quote, everlasting Lord, who from highest heaven comes down to be the offspring of the virgin's womb. Well, what did he come to do? His mission, his mission is to see God and sinners reconciled. How did he accomplish it? He, quote, lays his glory by that we no more may die. And how can this life be ours, Tim Keller asks. Through an inward spiritual regeneration so radical, as we have seen, it can be called the second birth. With brilliant economy of style, the carol gives us a summary of the entire Christian teaching. So as we turn our hearts and minds to Christmas, I really want us to get out of these few weeks the heart of God. And today we're going to look very simply, I'm going to jump in right in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus because I don't have time to do the whole thing and that's really bad preaching practice. So if you preach or teach for a living, don't jump in the middle. It's like picking up a book and writing like at page 150 and just start reading. I'm going to do that today. So be prepared. It's bad practice, but I'm going to do it today because I think you can handle it. Uh, and we're going to jump right into this conversation where Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about the new birth. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's a religious ruler. He's a part of the religious elite. He's one of the highest levels of teachers of Israel in his day. He's a guy who's got a PhD in theology. He would be looked at as one of the premier teachers of the people of Israel. And he has to wrestle with Jesus. He has to figure out how does Jesus fit into my theology because Jesus is, is doing uh, these things in life. He's having these uh, remarkable moments where he's declaring and turning water into wine. What do I do with that? He's clearing out the temple and saying, tear it down, I'll raise it again in three days. And he's doing these signs that I can't fit into my perspective on what it means to be a follower of God. So we're going to enter in right as Nicodemus asks one last question. And then what we're going to see is Jesus expand and show us the heart of God at Christmas. So if you come in and Christmas season for you is particularly difficult right now, if you come in during this Christmas season and you have this question in your mind, God, what are you doing in this situation? God, what are you doing in this relationship, in my family, in my workplace, on my campus? God, what is happening? I can't understand who you are. Then my prayer for, our, for you and for our time together is that we would, in these few verses, get a glimpse of the heart of God for us, okay? That's where we're gonna go. Let's pray, ask God for his grace, and then we'll jump in here. Father in heaven, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to understand and to see things in your word and to uh, apprehend some truths about you that wouldn't just be truths that we understand with our minds, but we would penetrate to the deepest parts of who we are and illumine our inner man 
that we would understand what Jesus says here that is so confusing to Nicodemus and that through your grace and through your spirit and through the few minutes we spend meditating on your word that you would give new birth to somebody in this room even today. So Father, as we bring into this place our uncertainty about life or our confusion or our discouragement or even despair over certain situations that we face, we pray that for just a few minutes, you would show us your heart. That through what Jesus says, we would understand new things about you, maybe for the first time, but maybe for those in this room who've been believers for a while, that they would apprehend and understand something about your heart afresh that it would begin to order our affections rightly, that it would begin to order the way we sing and we praise and we, we uh, go about our marriages and our parenting and our work, that uh, we would feel the joy of this season and understand your heart beneath it all in the sending of your son. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, take a look here. John, John chapter three, y'all there? John three, okay, both of you are there, good. John three, it's okay, I'll go, I'll slow down. John three, we're gonna start at verse nine. Jesus has been talking about the new birth. He's talking to an old man, an old spiritual leader, and Nicodemus comes to him at night, and he says, nobody can do the signs that you do, Jesus, unless they're from God. So you've got God's approval somehow in the things that you are doing, these miracles that you are pulling off, and I don't understand them. And Jesus, in typical fashion, he doesn't go back and forth with Nicodemus. He says, you've got to be born again. Jesus blows right past all of the formalities and gets to the heart of Nicodemus' struggle. Now, Nicodemus is a Jew. He's not just a Jew. He's, a, he's an educated Jew. He's not just an educated Jew. He's a ruler and teacher of the Jews. He's not only that. He's a part of the highest religious ruling council in the land. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. This is the group of Pharisees and Sadducees that will put Jesus to death toward the end of his ministry. And as Jesus confronts Nicodemus with the mandate of new birth, nobody can see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. His mind is blown. His theology is beginning to be reordered in the way that he knows and understands God. Now imagine, this guy's got a PhD in theology. He knows his stuff. And Jesus is now telling him things that don't fit his paradigm. Okay, so with that tension in the relationship, we're going to jump in at verse 9. See verse 9? Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And when it comes to spiritual birth, Jesus has just talked about the wind blowing where it wishes. You know that in this passage? If you've read this passage before, you know Jesus talks about uh, new birth, and he talks about the wind blowing where it wishes, and he says, so it is with those who are born of the Spirit of God. So that Jesus is confronting Nicodemus' theology. Nicodemus, uh, no doubt, would be well-versed in what it means to be a part of the sacrificial system of the day, and what it would, be, uh, what it would mean to be a part of the 
teaching of the Pharisees, what it would be, uh, what he would know about the sacrificial system, the traditions, and all of the normative Jewish experience of what it means to be an Old Testament Jew. And now Jesus is giving him a paradigm that shifts. He should know some things that Jesus is saying, which is Jesus will rebuke him here in a minute. But it begins in the tension. Now, this is what I want you to think about. And and all of what we're going to talk about today, I want you to think about when it comes to the Christmas season. At the Christmas season, let's be honest, there's a little bit of mystery in the incarnation. Right? God, man, it took five ecumenical councils to try to figure it out. They didn't figure it out. They just figured out what they had to say about it. Divine, human, Together, 100% God, 100% man. How's that work? I don't know. And Nicodemus asks the same question. So that very simply, Christmas comes with an air of mystery, doesn't it? Of things that we proclaim because God has declared them to be true. But are they things that we completely understand? And Nicodemus doesn't understand them either. How can these things be? This doesn't fit my understanding. New spiritual life, new birth doesn't fit into my understanding. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Can you feel Jesus doing air quotes? Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't get it? You're at the top of your game and you don't understand that uh, what happens when the spirit of God illumines and enlightens and regenerates a person? You don't get it? You don't understand? So this is helpful for us that we, at Christmas time, we need to grapple a little bit with not just nostalgia, but the mystery surrounding the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is a miracle that God can bring new spiritual life out of death, right? Move your head in a direction, like, okay? I don't care which one. Say no. It's a, it's a mystery. It's a miracle of what God does to raise the dead, So Jesus says, you're the teacher and yet you don't understand these things. So I love that Jesus brings Nicodemus in all of his intellect, all of his background, all of his maturity, all of his religious practices and all of his religious faithfulness and he brings him to the edge of his understanding. You see that? That he brings him to the edge of what he knows. Because the Christian faith at at its foundational element isn't fundamentally intellectual. It's fundamentally spiritual. It's the touching of heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. Right? If you could figure it out, I wouldn't want to believe in it. If you could intellectually reason. Now, is Christianity intellectually satisfying? Well, of course. But the foundation of the Christian faith, centering in Jesus Christ, the divine God-man, is beyond understanding. And that's where Jesus brings Nicodemus in his conversation. Now, at this point, you have a Bible with red letters in it. Do you see how from this point on there's no more black? 
That means Nicodemus does this. He don't talk anymore because he's reached the end of the conversation. He has nothing else to contribute in what Jesus is about to say. So from this point forward, Jesus is about to take us into the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery and the beauty and the wonder of the heart of God. He says, you don't understand? That's fine. You don't have to understand. Let me explain it to you. Because what Jesus is about to do is not leave us in a place of misunderstanding. He doesn't bring us to the end of our intellect and then make fun of us. He brings Nicodemus to the end of his intellect and the end of his understanding, and then he explains something for Nicodemus that Nicodemus can't figure out on his own. Isn't that great? That Jesus tells you the things you need to know that you can't figure out on your own. And I love that this conversation is between Jesus and one of the top dogs in his field. Because I don't care if you have a THD, an MD, a PhD, and multiples of them, that when it comes to the incarnation and the story of Christianity, your intellect will run out. And you will have to step into the mystery and the beauty of the divine God-man. And Jesus in this conversation now invites you to learn some things that you can't learn down here. Look at verse 11. Jesus is going to, he's going to move from heaven to earth. He's going to move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And he's going to move from death to life. You with me? I'm going to say it again. He's going to move from heaven to earth, the Old Testament to the New Testament, and from death to life. Kind of big deal issues that only Jesus can handle, right? So we've got a good teacher to lead us forward here. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. You ever have somebody talk to you who you know doesn't know what they're talking about? And you're just waiting for the conversation to be done, aren't you? And they finish their rant, and they're confident, and they're certain, but you know that they don't know what they are talking about. And Jesus begins this conversation in a wonderful way. He tells Nicodemus, hey, I know what I'm talking about. Now, commentators aren't sure on who the we is. It could be Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It could be the we of Jesus and the disciples. It could be the we of John the Baptist and Jesus. But either way, Jesus steps onto the scene. Remember from John 1 that in him was life. And that life was the light of men. That he steps into creation. And he tells us some things that he knows, that we need to know. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is reliable. What Jesus is about to say, you can count on. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. So what kind of knowledge is that? We speak of what we know, and we speak of what we've seen. It's firsthand knowledge. Jesus doesn't say, we speak of some things that we heard about one time through the grapevine. Jesus is very clear that he knows and he witnesses, that he is a first-hand witness of the things that he's about to tell you. You bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things 
and you do not believe, things about the wind, things about childbirth, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's a good question, isn't it? It lets you know that the Christian faith is not fundamentally a group of people who figured out things down here and made theories about heaven. You with me? That we don't get together and go, what do you think God's like? I don't know. What do you think God's like? I don't know. Tall? Okay, we've got tall. What else is God like? I don't know. He's patient maybe? Okay, tall and patient. That's just, let's, let's keep developing our ideas on God. That's not what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is received body of knowledge. You and I cannot know God unless God opens his mouth to tell us about God. You can't make it. Your ladder doesn't go that high. You can't figure out the infinite, personal, transcendent God on your own by thinking about it. And Jesus now gives Nicodemus knowledge that he doesn't have. He's about to give him wisdom and insight and understanding because he has firsthand knowledge that he's about to declare to Nicodemus. Here Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He said, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. Spiritual ideas don't make sense to the natural man. You can't think up a God like the God of the Bible. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that the new birth, Jesus' message, doesn't originate down here, it originates up here, right? It's a heavenly reality that Jesus is going to let us in on. He's going to open the doors of heaven and help us understand what he's talking about. Now look at verse 13, look at his qualifications. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. How do we get heavenly knowledge? How did we get the first five books of the Old Testament? Through Moses, God came down, was on the mountain, told Moses, heavenly knowledge, heavenly reality. How do we get heavenly knowledge from Jesus? Jesus says, I came down from heaven to give you heavenly knowledge, to give you an understanding of things that you cannot figure out on your own, things that you cannot understand on your own. I have to tell them to you. I have to give you heavenly truth. And in the context of this conversation, he's giving you heavenly truth about new life. He's not just giving you random bits of information about heaven. Remember we were in Revelation, you go, we got these angels, and there's six wings, and there's four faces, and I, I don't know what they're there for, why they're singing. Jesus gives us information from heaven, but it's essential information that we need to know. He doesn't give us everything. He gives us the essential heavenly information related to new spiritual life, new birth. This means that every single religious theory, every single human philosophy when it comes to God, man, sin, redemption, forgiveness, guilt, all of that has to run through the person of Jesus. Does your theology agree with what Jesus thinks about God? That's the question. Now, I'm going to bet on the guy who says, I came down from heaven to give you insight into things that you can't figure out on your own. Who are you going to go with? Oprah? I don't know. She's guessing. Ah, pretty good. I'll take the guess of a person who's going to die within the next 50 years. Jesus says, no, I've arrived to give you information that you can't get to on your own. 
And every single world system, world philosophy that has to deal with the sinfulness of mankind, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the, just, the justice of God, the righteousness of God has to pass through the person of Jesus. And Jesus has to determine, is it right, is it true, or is it not? That's why I, ever, I had a, a good friend of mine say, there's not any one of us who's going to arrive in heaven and go, got it, I knew it, I had it right. All of us are going to arrive in heaven and go, man, did I get that wrong? There are some things I didn't see correctly during my time on earth, right? Okay, Whew. good. See, this is what you know, um, Jesus acknowledged. This is, John has already said this. and Let me show you to you. Look in, in John, you're in three. Go back just one page to John 1. Look at John 1. Um, Nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here comes the creator of the world, and everybody goes, who? Who's that? What do you mean? I don't understand. Move down to John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him what? You may have a Bible that says he explained him. He made him known. He told you, Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of his nature. He is the glory, the, uh, the glory of the invisible God. Something, I might be Colossians. You can look it up later. Uh, so that when Jesus arrives, Jesus tells us what God is like. Come back to John 3. So now Jesus has told us, I've come down from heaven to give you certain spiritual knowledge that you can't get any other way. Not only that, I have arrived personally as a personal um, uh, witness of heaven's courts itself, and I've arrived to give you true spiritual knowledge. Now he's going to go, not just heaven to earth, he's going to go Old Testament to New Testament. Look at the verse 14. Well, we now have this message of salvation and new birth. What's the means? How do we get new life? Jesus in one verse sums up a big story from the book of Numbers. He says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to talk about heaven. Anybody could talk about coming from heaven, right? That's not exactly hard to do, really hard to test whether or not that person's from heaven, unless they raise from the dead. It's a little bit easier for you to say, hey, there's a Bible story in the Old Testament, Nicodemus, you know it, and it's about me. Now, if nothing else, that sounds super arrogant, right? But Jesus is now going to take an Old Testament passage and draw truth out of it that demonstrates something for Nicodemus and demonstrates for Nicodemus something about Jesus that he's telling us in this passage. Numbers 21, you have a cross-reference there? In your Bible, Numbers 21 is the story of the bronze serpent. Numbers 21, the people of Israel are wandering around and they're grumpy. They're normally grumpy. And they have this conversation and they start grumbling against God 
and against Moses. And it says, well, there's no food, there's no water. We hate this manna. We are not having a good day. And it says that the anger of God burned against the people of Israel. And what he did was he sent, quote, fiery serpents among them. Never a good day when poisonous snakes show up in your tent. So here's this situation where the grumbling and the anger of people at God and his, at his designated leader now results in God's judgment falling upon his people. The snakes start biting people. People start dying. It's a huge mess. The people come to Moses and they go, we've sinned. We've done wrong. We're sorry. Would you intercede for us with God? Moses says, yes, I'll intercede for you with God. And he intercedes for the people before God. And God says, here's how you're going to heal the sickness of these fiery serpents. You're going to make a bronze snake in the image of the consequences of what I have given for your disobedience, your anger, and your grumbling. And what you're going to do is you're going to put it on a pole, and you're going to set this pole up, and the bronze snake is going to be at the top of the pole, and anyone who is bitten by a snake turns and looks at that snake who's on a pole, they will be healed. You with me? Here's what Jesus says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's the way that you avoid death from being bitten by a poisonous snake? You turn in faith, look at the object that God has provided for your salvation, and you will be healed from the sickness of the venom. You with me? Now Jesus says, that story isn't about the snakes so much, it's about me. That the Son of Man, not should be, but must. The Son of Man must be lifted up. What is Jesus pointing forward to? Say crucifixion. crucifixion. Okay, the crucifixion, thank you. He's looking forward to the crucifixion. Jesus recognizes that spiritual new birth has to have an object of faith. That's how new births, new spiritual life starts. And Jesus comes in space and in time to be the object of salvation, to be the object of our faith. And he takes this Old Testament picture, this Old Testament story, and says, as the snake was lifted up, so I must be lifted up, so that every single person who turns and looks to me and puts their faith and their trust in the object that God has provided for their faith, that they will be healed, they will be saved. You with me? So he's taken heaven to earth. He's taken Old Testament to New Testament, saying that I'm the fulfillment of Numbers 21. Now he's going to take death to life. And now, I want you to get the the transition here. What he's just said is the context of perhaps the most well-known verse in all the Bible. We're about to read John 3.16. Anybody remember the guy with the rainbow hair at the football games who would hold up John 3.16? See, somebody who watched football. I used to watch football before I had kids. I play football with my kids now. There was a guy at national football and the, the, the league of national football. And he would stand at the, uh, these things. Thank you. The goalpost. And he'd have this big rainbow hat and he would hold up John 3.16. 
John 3.16, one of the most well-known passages in all the scripture, begins with a word. What's the word that John 3.16 begins with? For. For, when you encounter that in the New Testament, is an explanatory word. So Jesus just told the story of a people who rebel against God, who hate his rules, his laws, his uh, designated leader. They hate his provision whatsoever. And Jesus says, I'm the bronze snake. See, what is veiled in Numbers 21 is the heart of God. And what Jesus is about to do for you and I in John 3.16 is open up the heart of God for us. We're about to see the motivation of the incarnation. We're about to see what God does to demonstrate something about his heart in the person of Jesus for you and me. Uh, I had a, um, you remember, you guys heard Matt Kozer last week, right? Remember that story of Christmas that he told with the broccoli? Didn't, I mean, how sad, how crushing a Christmas of Matt. And I just pictured the little mini fridge and the broccoli on top and Matt just... Right? Didn't you feel that? Is Matt in here? No? Is he not? I have a, uh, you know, worse than that, I have a good friend, um, a guy who, you know, had a, had a great ministry in my life and my wife's heart as we were getting ready to be married. And uh, he was in town a number of years ago and we were driving around and somehow the topic of Christmas came up. And, and out of him, um, I was so surprised by it because he's, he's typically a pretty mild-mannered guy. But out of him came such emotion as he talked about Christmas because Christmas for him was the time when his parents told him we're getting divorced. And every single Christmas for him is this dark cloud that covers his life. And man, do you ever, you ever prayed those prayers where you go, God, if you love me, you'd dot, dot, dot. This difficulty wouldn't be so hard. This season wouldn't be so heart-wrenching. That in your conversations with God and in the prayers that you don't tell a lot of people that there's this, there's this subtle anger or frustration or bitterness or sadness when it comes to God. And you go, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't see how this demonstrates your love for me. I don't understand this season of life or how this, this difficulty is, is kind of wrecking my life right now. And uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, struggle with gout for, the, for the, a large part of his preaching career. And there's a, a quote that he says where, where in his processing about the pain that he would go through with gout, he, he would pray and go, God, I wouldn't treat my kid this way. God, you're my heavenly father and I am your child, but I wouldn't treat my kid this way. That this pain is so debilitating and hard and heart-wrenching that God... It's hard for me to see the love of my heavenly father. And when John 3.16 erupts in your mind, as you read through John 3, John 3.16 explodes in our, you could quote it without trying right now, couldn't you? And it comes on the heels of people who hate 
God. It comes in the midst of a story of people who are frustrated with God and how he leads and what he's doing and how it makes no sense and why they're in the wilderness and they're so angry and they're experiencing the consequences of their rebellion against God. And now Jesus moves on and he goes, for God, so what? Loved. For God, so, you know, uh, the word so uh, for us, you, could, you can kind of read it two different ways. It could mean so much, right? An amount. While God's love is big, yay, even infinite, that's not what it means here in the Greek. All throughout the book of John, so in this phrase and the way it's written has to do with in what manner. How does he love what does he do to demonstrate his love? What is the thing that God chooses to put forth and to demonstrate and to display his love? For God so loved the world. Now go back, because you can't understand verse 16 unless you understand verses 14 and 15. How does God love the world? by sending the Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the wrath bearer, to be the intercessor. This is how God, the cross is God's monument to the world. He says, do you doubt my love? Look at the cross. Do you want to know what my heart is like? Look at the cross. Look at who I have sent to raise up, to take away the wrath and the justice for your sin. This is how God loved the world. He sent who? His only son. So God is not just demonstrative in the way that he uh, demonstrates his love, that, that he exposes the heart of love that he has, but he also tells us that his heart is generous. Now I have multiple kids, but I've got only one son. And when I read that, no dad of a son, who has one son? Anybody have one son? You can't read that without feeling that in your chest, can you? You can't feel that without the heart-wrenching reality of what it means for God to give his one and only son? This is what this God is like? This is how he demonstrates his love for us? See, the Jews would have thought that God loved the Jews. But what's the scope of God's love in the passage? For God so loved the, come on, the world. Nicodemus just had his circuits fried. This is one of the main problems in the book of Acts. They go, what, the gospel's going where? To which people? Those people don't believe like we believe. And the gospel message tunnels through the book of Acts as it reaches cultures and peoples and languages and tongues and nations all the way through to the book of Revelation, right? He so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, how many people can receive the gift of new life, new spiritual life, new uh, second birth? How many? Whoever. 
I don't care if you're rich or poor or black or white or from uh, Asia or America or Latin America. I don't care if you've uh, got an education or not have an education. I don't care if you have a PhD or you have a GED. It does not matter what your background is. No matter who it is, they all can come and have new spiritual life through Jesus. Amen? Everyone. This message goes everywhere that you can be made right and you can be made new and your sins can be forgiven and it doesn't matter what your background is, you can be forgiven and brought into God's family. This is what John 1 says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right to become children of God. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does that mean? You've got to believe. You've got to turn. Now, think, think about who's Jesus talking to. He's talking to somebody with all of the religious cred you could have in his day and time. And he said, you've got to walk away from your reputation. You've got to walk away from your achievements. You've got to walk away from your degrees. You've got to walk away from uh, all of that glory that you can have by being a teacher of Israel and being one of the elite in your day. And you've got to turn and put your faith and trust in the one who has died for you. You like Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> Will you teach them to be happy? I don't care. Who said? Teach these folks to be happy about Christmas. I love, let me say two things about this. This is just free. Take this, do what you want with it. Do you give good Christmas gifts? I mean, not just like, oh man, where's Harris Teeter? I need a gift card. Not that kind. Like, we've all done that. But do you give good Christmas gifts? I love getting Suzanne good Christmas gifts. I've learned, we've been married coming on 13 years. I've, in the beginning of our marriage, I would try to, I would do the, the equivalent of like closing my eyes, grabbing a bow and arrow, and trying to hit the bullseye. I wouldn't recommend that. But I love getting her things that we, she wouldn't get for herself. And what I tried to do early in our marriage is tried to guess. Have I spent hundreds of dollars on things that she didn't want? I have. <laughs> have I spent hundreds of dollars of things that she didn't ask for or need? Yes, I have. I've done that too. But I love trying to find the thing that she didn't know that she even thought that she might need. Because I love Suzanne. And I love guessing. Now, I've learned later and as I've grown to listen to my wife that I should ask her what she so desires for Christmas. Okay? Write this down. Young guys, young guys in marriage, you can write this down. This is good. Use this. God gives his best. Do you know that? That God loves to give his best. He loves to give exactly what you need to display his eternal love. That's what Christmas is. He gives the best. This is why I love Christmas. I love getting creative with gifts and I can't wait to have their mind blown. Do you give like that? 
Because that, only Christians get that, right? We go, God gave his absolute best. I'm going to get so creative and thoughtful, and I'm going to ask a lot of questions about what she wants, but I'm going to get her the things that are the best. Now, two, this is important. Don't miss number two. Do you receive good gifts? And this gets into the heart of this passage right here. Because a lot of people, they don't know what to do when people are generous toward them. They get all uncomfortable. People thought about me and spent money on me, and I don't really know if I can accept a gift like that. That's such a good gift. I didn't know I really needed it. I really want it. It's a really good gift, but I don't know if that. I feel like the center of attention, and now I'm going to say it. I don't say thanks. I don't say thanks enough. And I, you know, they go through this whole rigmarole where you just like when you give a gift that you can't wait to see their eyes light up and go, I can't imagine that you went to this extent to think about me. And it says something about us that when we receive the gift of Jesus Christ for us, all we can do is sing, can't we? All we can do is, oh God, thank you for what you have done. This is what Paul says. Paul in 2 Corinthians goes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He can't even contain himself because receiving a gift requires a profound amount of humility, doesn't it? It requires you to say, God, I couldn't earn it. I couldn't understand it. And God, because of your great love with which you have loved us, you have given me new spiritual birth because of what you have done for me. Oh, praise God, thank you. So both of those realities that you feel, hey, when Christmas morning happens and you gave a good gift, think back to what God has given and you have a, an opportunity to be a part of the very heart of God in demonstrating your love. But second, receive good gifts. Now this could get us in trouble as a church. If you all start getting generous and giving people gifts that they don't deserve, and Right? It might actually mean that we're thoughtful and we have apprehended the grace of God and Jesus Christ that has so affected our wallets that we actually give sacrificially and generously to people because of the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ for us. You with me? You see how Christ can transform your Christmas? Can transform your, I I get it, everybody's materialistic. We don't want to be too materialistic. We don't want to give too generously. But this can transform your Christmas. Now, verse 17 starts with another word. See what it is? Four. Okay. Good. Four. We're continuing to explain. We've, we've, we've seen the heart of God in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. This is what he did. He gave us Jesus Christ to be raised upon the cross for us that he might die the death that we deserve. He gave his one and only son. He's profoundly generous. And all you have to do to receive that gift is to believe that God has sent his son for you and for your sin. Four. Now this, 17 and 18, are the black velvet on which the jewel of the gospel glistens. It's a jewelry reference. Did anybody ever buy a wedding ring for their wife? A good jeweler puts it, see, one guy raised his hand. That's it. Nobody else is, I'm using illustrations that you've never heard of. This is fascinating. 
the jewel sits on the black velvet in the backdrop so that the light, as it hits the gem, it hits the diamond, refracts in such a way that you can see its beauty. Four, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Do you hear the echoes of Romans 8.1? For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus doesn't arrive on the scene as the fulfillment of Numbers 21 to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Have you seen the terms that Jesus has used? He's used crucifixion, raised up to die. He's used uh, perishing. He's used condemnation. That this dark backdrop of this Numbers 21, anger and hatred and revulsion at God and his people and his provision and the intercessor that he has put in front of us is now contrasted with the beauty of Jesus Christ being sent as the only son for our sins. Verse 18, there it is again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now this is a major problem for Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus has now just heard that no religious performance, no amount of theological degrees, no amount of uh, earnest service and obedience will earn him new birth. Rather, he stands condemned unless he receives the gift of God by faith. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. You see what God does? He sends his only Son and says, believe in the only Son. He says, I'm sending my one and only Son to display the love I have for the world. See, the love of God is so great, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Have you been out there? That when we talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is profound that God would demonstrate his love through the crucifixion of his son, isn't it? And as we read 3.16 and 17 and 18, we feel and hear again the invitation to believe in the demonstration, in the monument of God's love for you. Look, I, I get, man, if you have been walking with God for more than 20 minutes... I get it that your Christian life can be confusing. My Christian life is confusing. There are areas of life where I don't understand what God is doing, but the longer I live and the longer I walk with God, the more often I am drawn back to the truth of John 3.16. That he has handled for me the greatest problem. Listen, everything gets, gets real 2020 when you're bitten by a snake. Would you agree? We can quickly categorize the most important things. One, getting rid of the venom. Two, get rid of the venom. Three, see number one and two, right? All of a sudden, my life is in very clear and very stark relief. And when I begin to meditate on the fact that Jesus has come and Jesus has died because God loves me, that I would no longer perish but have 
eternal life. That I would no longer be condemned, but set free. That I would no longer be judged, but that I can receive forgiveness. When I meditate on those realities, the love of God moves from my head into my heart and begins to create an aura of thankfulness. It begins to cause me to sing because God, as the best gift giver, gave me something I couldn't earn, I couldn't work for, I couldn't screw up with my own mental fortitude or earnest courage, that he touched me, that I turned and looked at the cross and said, I trust him, and that I've been given new, spiritual, everlasting, incorruptible, forever and always eternal life. So if this Christmas, for you, my prayer as we meditate on John 3.16 is that we might begin to understand with the eyes of our heart that God has demonstrated his love for us by sending his son. And if you're hitting that season of difficulty and hardship and uncertainty, for the next few weeks, would you just open the posture of your heart to be reminded of the fact that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be refreshed with the knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus Christ through the incarnation. That the incarnation demonstrates for us the very heart of God. That we would be brought into right relationship and that we would receive new birth and eternal life. So Father, for these things we pray. For those who are in this room who feel the discouragement and the despair and the uncertainty of the situations that they are in, I pray that through your word and through your spirit that there might be a new wind of the spirit of God in their heart and mind. That they would experience what we see here in this text. That they would know the very heart of God as they, with eyes of faith, gaze upon the divine God-man who was incarnated to die, to demonstrate and create a monument of your love for the whole world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Father, would the heart of love that you have for the world penetrate into the dark recesses of the hearts of the people who are in this room? Would they hear again the love of God and Jesus Christ for them? Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love us in our darkness and in our weakness and in our despair and our rebellion of you, that you loved us enough to send your one and only son because of your love and your generosity toward us. Father, refresh our hearts this Advent season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.